Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. This week on Product Love, I talked to Heaton Shaw, the co-founder of Product Habits, Use FYI and Crazy Egg. He was also previously the co-founder and CEO of Kissmetrics, and he's an advisor and an angel investor. So he and his refreshingly transparent and open, whether we're talking about his article, My Billion Dollar Mistake, or we're talking about feature adoption. He doesn't hesitate to give an honest, raw, thoughtful response. He walks us through the reality of being a founder and product creator in the SaaS industry. So with that, I'm going to give you my podcast with Heaton Shaw. Tell me what you think, ebotic at pendo.io or ebotic on Twitter. So welcome lovers of product. Today I am here with Heaton, who's a product leader, a past and probably future founder and writer. Current founder too. Current founder too. Well, you don't pass. When you find it, you're like done. And I'm sure there'll be more companies in the future. Of course. I don't doubt that at all. (laughs) Having just, you know, the limited amount of time we spent together, I would be shocked if you didn't start another company sometime in the future too. Uh, So why don't you kick this off by giving us an overview of your background? Yeah. uh, Back in 03, I started a marketing consulting company uh, with my co-founder, who is my brother-in-law, actually. I was introduced to him by my wife. Uh, originally, and she's like, you two should work together because he has one customer paying him 3500 bucks a month to do SEO. And he was just getting into college and I was just getting out of college. And from there, we started making some money in that business and we uh, decided to spend it on building software because we knew that consulting only scales to a certain extent. And so we decided to basically build, we ended up building about between 04 and 05, we built about 10 or 12 different products, including uh, a little bit later too, uh, we kept going for a little bit, um, a podcast advertising network, a hosting company that we lost a million dollars in because it never launched, and a bunch of stories like that. And that really got me really excited about product development and thinking through um, how to solve problems for people using software. And so the one that worked, we like to call it, is uh, Crazy Egg, and it creates heat maps for people are clicking on a page, and it launched in 2005. And since then, I've built another SaaS company called Kissmetrics. Uh, that one we raised money for. Crazy Egg is now 14 years old, and it's self-funded. Uh, so I have experiences raising money and self-funding. Kissmetrics is definitely something where we've had a lot of ups and we have we had a lot of ups and downs. I left the company a while ago, and more recently, I had a personal newsletter that I ended up rebranding with a new co-founder of mine, and we call it Product Habits, and it's at ProductHabits.com, and we actually show people how we do product development from interviews to early access uh, processes to user testing to things around analytics and pricing surveys. And literally we do them for ourselves and we teach people exactly how to do them. And in that process, we iterated a couple ideas, but really came to one that we've been spending a lot of our energy on. And it's a SaaS product. It's called FYI. It's at usefyi.com. And our value prop on the homepage is find your documents in three clicks or less. And we figured that out by literally asking one single question to hundreds of people, which is what's your number one challenge with documents? And it turns out the number one challenge with documents that everyone has is finding them across all the tools they use and their computer or computers. So that's my story. Uh, those, and I work on ProductHabits.com as well as uh, UseFYI.com. 
and I'm still an owner in crazyet.com. Awesome. I mean, that's, that's impressive. I was thinking of documents too, because I'm, you know, Google Docs. I can't even find things in Google Docs, never mind across all my computers and all yep. my different documents and all of my different, you know, phones and notepads and stuff like that. If you can add in my personal notepad, I think uh, that would be super helpful too. Like, we, where did I write that down? Yeah. <laughs> we have iCloud integration stuff we need to do, but yes, there's a, there's a lot. And it, it's a fun problem because it's big and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a market where everyone feels like they have the problem too. So talk to me about being a founder. You know, what, what in life prepared you for that role or was it something you weren't prepared for? Uh, since I was about four or five, uh, my dad and I debate this, but he told me I should be an entrepreneur. So he's a physician and he has the foresight to tell me or had the foresight to tell me that he doesn't use his brain. He's an anesthesiologist. And so he puts you to sleep and wakes you up, you know, before you have an operation or whatever. And I didn't quite get it for a while. And he basically said, most of my job is muscle memory. And I wouldn't want that for you because I don't feel like I use my brain. He also throws a whole bunch of free health camps in the U.S. and across the world for things from simple things like eyeglasses all the way to like cataracts and, you know, all kinds of different things. And so he kind of gets his entrepreneurial spirit out in that way. And I think like I, I definitely am and my father's son in this where I listen to him. So my, my most direct answer to you would be I don't know any better. I've had one job in my life and it was at a company that my dad knew uh, while they were in, in two people in the garage and it, it's a medical devices company called Massimo and uh, I was an intern there I think during college and I definitely drove the IT person crazy. Uh, I've had a computer since I was eight. Uh, I, w I stopped programming at QBasic and just uh, had businesses in high school and college and when I got out, of, my dad said, you need to get one degree. So I got one degree, cool. It was on his dime, fine. And then, and then I stayed five and a half years in college and made a bunch of money while I was there. So to me, like, I don't know any better. I'm really thankful for my dad telling me that and not pushing me into a certain direction and then me having to undo that. And part of it is, I think, because either he wanted that for himself and doesn't have it in his mind, uh, where the big thing is like he worked, his whole thing is like, I spend, I spend my time, I make money. If you're a founder or entrepreneur, you can make it. You can make your life in such a way where you don't have to spend your time to make money. So it's not like an hourly sort of thing. And I think he was really fixated on that. And I, and I adopted that and took it on. But when I, when I talk to people who are founders, like my belief is that like, it's almost something where like, if you don't do it, you're not complete. And it has a lot to do with our personal desire to create. And it doesn't matter if you like quit your job and go become a freelancer. I feel like you're a founder in, in a lot of ways too, or anything like that. But it's really about some concept of working for yourself and being able to own that sort of relationship with the world. So to me, it has a lot to do with your relationship with the world and, and the people around you. And that, that, that's it. But for me, I don't think, I haven't met anyone that's had the same experience where someone told them they should do this. And someone was that like supportive. He's been extremely supportive of that, not just telling me to do it. There's been many times when like, you know, we've failed and things like that. And he's been the person who said, hey, it's okay, just keep going. Like, like don't worry about it. Like, worst things will happen and have happened, just keep going. And I think that support uh, is really what kept me going for the longest time. So talk to me about something you weren't prepared for. I'm never prepared for anything. So <laughs> we, did, we had a class action lawsuit that was us and 25 customers at Kissmetrics that really hurt the company in big ways. 
Um, we ended up settling it eventually and it made it so we couldn't raise money for two years. That was pretty bad. I was replaced as CEO the, literally the day the lawsuit was over, roughly speaking, uh, and our independent board member became the CEO. That was kind of the plan, so I didn't resist it. In hindsight, I didn't get a chance to run the company when it was uh, later stage and in a, in a stable place because we couldn't raise money for two years during the lawsuit. Um, I don't think you're ever prepared for anything. I prefer to think that you have to learn how to, when something happens, really quickly get the best get the best information and data and knowledge that you can at the time. And if you try to prepare too hard for things that you think are going to happen, you end up turning into a worry wart and driving people crazy. So my take is just like, I'd rather feel like, feel very comfortable with not being prepared for things. Uh, for example, like even in this podcast, you folks are awesome and sent the questions. I skimmed them and then I forgot all of them. And to me, it's like, for me at least, this is personal to me, It'll be a much more natural, insightful conversation if I don't care what the questions are and if I don't worry about it. Hmm. Interesting. So, so let's talk about... Don't worry, know. be happy. <laughs> let's talk about something you've written about, right? You wrote a blog post sure. that's a great read. It's called, the, I'm going to paraphrase, you know, your billion dollar mistake. That was the title. Uh, definitely refreshingly honest in that piece. And I think started maybe, I feel like you started this whole honesty trend that's come out of founders uh, in Silicon Valley in, in particular, uh, maybe too much sometimes. Uh, so tell me about that. Were you worried about criticism? What was your thought process when you wrote that? I really believe in postmortems. I really believe in reviewing what happened in order to improve. I had a set of bulleted notes after my Kissmetrics experience just bullets, the extreme of thought around all these mistakes that I thought we made and I made specifically, not even we. And there were some we's in there in a separate note just around team stuff. But at the end of the day, I, I feel a high level of responsibility as the founder and the CEO at many times during the company's life cycle. I actually went in and replaced the CEO once uh, for six months. Uh, so I was interim as well as CEO and co-founder. And for me, like the story is just, something that I felt like was very personal that where I really screwed up and I know where I screwed up and an executive in the company wrote this memo called uh, heat and bombs or heat and tornado. Uh, and he gave it a bunch of different names that I didn't share in the blog post, nothing bad, just different names, but heat and bomb is the one that stuck. And like I was being the disruptive founder in the company and, and CEO as well. And I have a lot of clout and like, I think, for me, it wasn't about being afraid to post it. It was more about the release I got from posting it and just putting it out there in the world. And when I create content, I don't really worry too much about what's gonna happen. Uh, I don't worry about anything. I, I more worry about, is it quality? Does it read well? Are, are, does it flow well? Can, can people, does it resonate with them? Is it relatable? Like those things are important to me. So this one's interesting because I talk about how we were successful early on and then I screwed it up. And I give a very good reason why it's a billion dollar mistake because there are companies that are in our space that adopted a lot of things that we created and helped pioneer and are much larger than that business, much, much larger and will continue to grow. And, and that business I started will not. And um, I get it. I get what you mean by starting a trend or, or inciting something like that. I don't view it like that. I just want to tell the truth. And I feel like when I put content out there like this, I don't have any expectation. The things I've heard though are incredible. Like there are companies with hundreds to thousands of people where they've told me literally 
everyone in the company has read the post or that they read the post out loud at an all hands meeting. And these are people I don't know. So for me, it's more like, I don't know if I'll ever write something that had that kind of impact. And it, it, my friend, I was, I was talking to her about it and she was telling me, oh, so it's like a piece of art. Because she asked me, do you have any reason to explain anything in there or, or talk to people about it or explain anything you know, related to it? I'm like, no, look at the impact that it's had. What am I, all I can do is devalue anything I've created there. So to me, it's almost the opposite, which is like, I believe we should be putting out our truth. And, and what happened in a scenario and, and get past a lot of the revisionist history that we keep hearing about in a lot of successful companies where, you know, there's like books about Twitter, about what really happened, but nobody from Twitter wrote it. Well, I want to hear from the founders what their perspective was on what happened. And so to me, it was more like, let me put this out there and hopefully people will get value from it. And if yeah, not, at least yeah. I put it out there. No, I, I think it's, it's very powerful. And, and, I think there's two aspects, right? A lot of people are, are afraid of being that vulnerable and that exposed. Yeah. And then a lot of people want to control their own narrative for the future. Yeah. Uh, and there's a mix of that that turns into, you know, revisionist or, you know, correct, maybe drunk history. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just being factual. Everything I said in there happened. And I tried to leave out very few details because the story is long and there are other things. But at the end of the day, that's what happened. That's what I believe happened. How about that? Because there is no truth at the end of the day, right? Like it's whatever we believe in our perspective. But it's been literally amazing at the, the response and the resonance. And I think partly it's because it speaks to anybody who's a founder or CEO. And it also speaks to people who are impacted by these executives, even an executive, right? Executives throw bombs around too, like in helicopter in, cause disruptions and don't realize it. So I think it's almost like if I helped more people be sober, I'm happy. So if people haven't read it, you can just Google Heaton Shaw, Billion Dollar Mistake. It's yeah, going to be right there. It. You'll find it. <laughs> it's going to be right there. Um, so you've started a number of companies. You, you took us through them. What are you noticing about trends in building out product in those companies? Like, How has that changed over the years? How do you think it's going to change in the future? We went from a sales-heavy tech industry to a marketing heavy tech industry. And I think we had a stint with what we call growth heavy tech industry. And we have now become a product tech industry. And these are phases. And when product was harder to build, there was less product, so sales mattered. When product got a little bit easier, thanks to like Amazon Web Services and different tooling like that, we became more marketing heavy because like product became a little bit easier to build, right, and push out. And now, you know, I hear there, and then, you know, there was obviously growth, which I think had a stint in the middle, which is still a nebulous concept as to like, what is actually growth? And like, what does that mean as a category? And, you know, there's companies with growth teams and they dismantle them and all kinds of fun stuff going on. And a lot of the friends I know that were really big into growth are really just like, hey, growth is product, right? So that's really interesting. We now have product-led growth. Yeah, yeah, now we have product-led growth, right? Great, so we are product, it is product. It's always been product. So to me, it's always been product. And even with sales, no product, no sales, right? No product, no retention. So we're just back to product. And I think that's, that doesn't go away. There's nothing new. There's nothing else we're going to get to. This is it. And so to me, I mean, I think the number is like twenty to 25,000 new companies launching every year or new startups, specifically tech-oriented or whatever, tech-enabled, whatever you want to call it. That's crazy. So I just look at it like you have to be better than you ever had to be at product development than serving customers customer obsession, all those kinds of things than ever before. 
And when we started in 05 and launched Crazy Egg, we could put it out, get it on dig.com. That time it was dig.com, get thousands and thousands of signups on day one, and from there build a business. Today, yeah, you can launch on Product Hunt or whatever you know the, the, the site is that makes sense for your business. Product Hunt is likely good for a lot of things. And you'll get a bunch of signups, but that doesn't mean it works. Back in the day, it meant it worked because whatever you put out, there wasn't anything else like it. Now there's like multiple things like it, unless you actually spend the time to think through and, and figure out what's the most promising and challenging problem to solve for people and challenging for them. Like what's their challenge and promising for you. And promising means, is it in a big enough market uh, or a growing market? Is there like what I call like tailwind behind you? Are there some trends that you can hit on? For example, your own company, you're hitting on the trend that product is more important than ever if I were to just put it out there. And you folks have been at it a while and have sort of almost lived long enough to, to realize that like product teams are buyers of software in a way that they weren't before. And I think it's because of this big trend. So to me, I think it's more important than ever to be world-class at product development for most companies that are out there. Yeah, I remember when we started and talking about Pendo, my uh, other job other than, you know, the Product Love podcast. I, I remember getting the feedback like, oh, product people it's not don't buy software. That's right. You know, well, that's changed. I think they buy a little bit of software, right? <laughs> I mean, inevitably they will, right? I mean, it's like any, it's like saying XY industry isn't going to be digital. And yeah. the fact is, probably is. It's probably just early in that cycle. That's right. You know, with few to no exceptions, right? Uh, or at least have heavy software components to them. And it's just a matter of how far ahead you're looking and whether you're too early. Right. Um, yeah. So what can companies do to be more product-led, more product-focused? I mean, I'm going to give the pithy answer. The pithy answer is like obsess over the customer. Like forget everything else. Forget even your product. Like go figure out everything you can about them that makes it so that you're the expert about your customer and you know more about the customer, their challenges, their pains, what makes them happy, their emotions than anybody else. And anybody else in the market, ideally any human on the planet, especially oriented around the problems you're looking to solve and anything ancillary to it. So for example, in my business, FYI, we've spent, we spent so much time early on roughly like a year to 15 months ago on doing research that I've never had as clear of a roadmap for even the next one or two years in terms of like directionally what should be built. And obviously as we launch and, and learn, things change, but the core of the problem we're looking to solve and how deeply rooted it is in people's mindset and in challenges in the world is very clear. And even the things we can build on top of it and the ancillary problems we can solve are very clear too. So if you have that customer obsession early on and you build that into your processes or even later on you learn how to make that a commitment inside the company, I think everything changes. And a lot of that also has to do with like, why do the customers love you? And also, why do the customers dislike you? And figuring out how to communicate that to your team so the customer is at the forefront of every single thing they do regardless of what area they work in. And again, I know it's pithy. I know we keep hearing it over and over again, but today you don't really have an excuse. Whether it's quantitative analysis, qualitative information, uh, surveys, things like that, interviews, there's so much knowledge out there on how we can continuously be obsessed with the customer and learn everything we can about them before we actually take action on building something. And so, you know, this has been historically where I spent most of my time since I first started building software, being sort of a marketer first, 
uh, and really caring about value propositions and customer sentiment and the words customers use and things like that. And now it's just extended to product for me where it's like, I want to know everything I can about them. Our team should be designed around that. So is there any concern about being too product centric? I think the concern would be not being customer centric or customer obsessed enough and less so about being too product centric because to me product touches the majority of a business if not all of it including hr believe it or not and so if your product team touches all areas of your business what is it that the product team can help the rest of the company do and to me it's like they can help the rest of the company be more obsessed with the customer even more so than sales teams are because sales teams are obsessed with revenue let's just put yeah, it out yeah. for what it is but they should be obsessed with the customer not just revenue. And the obsession should align with revenue for sure. The obsession on engineering should be aligned with how can we make this better, faster, cheaper for our business, but also for the customer. Yeah. And I'd even argue, I mean, you think about, I mean, even revenue feels short term because it kind of is. What's not short term is the retention in the long term, right? Absolutely. And the retention in the long term then goes back to, are you are you giving the value to the customer? Because we live in this world of SaaS. Having grown up in a world of, you know, gold discs, right? Yes, yes. Uh, it's not like you buy something, they've paid for it, and that's most of the money you're ever going to see other no. than maybe maintenance that we did a better job of, you know, managing later, right? The yep. ongoing 18% maintenance or whatever it happened to be, or 20% with gold or whatever it turned into. Correct. But my point being is like, used to be a big upfront purchase, and so you didn't have to worry about things as much. And now it's like you buy software, but you're really just buying a period of time to use the software. Right. So you have to not think about that initial sale, which is important, but not just think about that initial sale. You need to think about like, are you giving the value to the customer? Well, so they keep buying, they keep renewing, they keep using, they keep expanding. Yeah, well, in a health, healthy business has net negative churn. How do you get that? Well, it's what you said. You make sure that they keep getting value and they get more value over time and they're willing to pay for it. Now, do you see, like, let's talk about that in this product vision too. Do you see companies that are so product focused, they're like, I don't need sales. I don't need marketing. My product markets and sells itself. I think in the last 10 years, there's definitely been a tremendous amount of that. And I think we're changing. We're changing to a place where like other teams in the company, such as sales and marketing and growth or whatever, whatever you want to call it, are leveraging what product creates in order to create more value for the business. And so... I'm not one to say your company has to be product centric. I I believe your company has to be customer centric no matter what. And that leads you to have to get better at product and product should be closest to the customer even more so than sales. And I think that's the challenge for me, which is like, how do you create an organization where the product team is as close, if not closer to the customer as a sales team? And that's what I think a lot of folks were scared about underneath it. The root cause of folks being scared of sales is they thought it would change their product-led culture. And I don't think that's the case anymore. I think there's enough data points to show that, you know, a good example is like Dropbox versus Box. Box is pretty customer-centric for their enterprise customers. Dropbox makes more money, I believe, last time I checked, but they've had a harder time being customer-centric beyond their prosumer user base or their SMB user base or their mid-market user base. And Box has been able to own this specific type and segment of a cu- of customer. And you could argue that Dropbox has a way stronger foundation of revenue to get into enterprise. But somehow they haven't been able to actually do it as well as Box has. I'm sure they've done it to some extent. 
So when I compare those two companies, I think one company definitely had struggled with sales. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to imply or anything and say Dropbox didn't care about sales, but they definitely struggled with it in a way that Box didn't. And Box yeah, struggled with yeah. the opposite. So it just depends on DNA and self-awareness and how fast you can change as a work. Yeah, I, it's interesting because I, I've heard some you know, startups talk about, oh, we've done all of this without any marketing. And they have cap- capital. And I'm like, well, how much better would you have done if you were doing marketing? You know, it's like, I don't, look, no at that as, I don't yeah. look at that as a badge of honor. Yeah, or no, like, no hey, we're going to build this without a sales team. And I'm like, well, you know, like Brian Kimmel talks about this whole plateau, right? Yeah. Where like it's purely product led, especially when you move to enterprise. If you don't understand those motions, now you're doing it off this big rolling stone that's your company, right? It's harder to move that. It's harder to, you know, it's harder to teach yourself the enterprise sales motion if you've never done any of it. So I I feel like there's like the cautionary's tale. Like we've moved from this age where in the past, you know, it was this idea of like, oh, build a shitty product. doesn't matter because we have a sales org that can sell anything. That's right. right. To this point of like, oh, we build a great product. So we don't even need sales and marketing. So do you see that or do you see that as much or... People want to buy from other people. And sure, if they can sign up online and try it, they want to do that too. But they want to buy from people. So when they need to buy and they want a question answered, they probably don't want to use your chat box. They probably don't want to go troll through the support. They actually want to talk to a human. And there are too many opportunities in so many industries and so many customer targets, if you want to call it that, that want to talk to you or talk to someone. So yeah, it doesn't scale. So without sales, you will not scale. So let's, let's shift back a little to the, the product side, you know, and let's talk a little bit about what well, you product... got tired of talking about sales. No, I was I <laughs> I'm a product guy, but I mean, I've grown up more in the marketing yeah. world. It's a mix of product Joking. marketing and biz dev, but, yeah. uh, you know, there's, we've touched on a lot of things that I want to dig into, right? So you're talking about the things that product managers do right. And then, but what do they do wrong? What do you see product managers still get wrong a lot? Yeah, I think this is something, um, what keeps coming in my head is there's a few things, but the biggest one for me is like they don't take baby steps. And, and it, it, it's something that's just constantly in my mind, which is like, what's the quicker, faster, lowest risk way to address the biggest risk we have? And usually the biggest risk that I keep hitting on is uh, feature adoption in a product. And we're all building new features, whether we want to admit it or not, or whether we want to admit that that's a bad thing. So to me, features are bad is where I'll start. And I think product people think features are good. So I think one mistake they make constantly is that the next great idea is a new feature that's gonna solve all our problems. Um, I think another mistake they make, which is kind of related is, they don't actually have deliberate targets and goals based on user behavior or customer behavior or customer journey related to the initiatives they're doing. So it's like, I can go to a product team and be like, okay, there's all these features you wanna build, you have a roadmap, do you know what's going to happen when you build that feature and when you ship it to customers? 100% the answer is no. Okay, fine, 90%. One in 10 have good answers to that. I don't think so. Like, I talk to so many teams and like, they don't know why they're building the features they're building. It's just like sitting here and, and asking a team member, do you know what impact the work you have is that you're doing is going to have on the business? So many team members don't know. Sales always knows. Most other parts of the business have a hard time answering the question. I think product is like one of the worst where it's like, we're working on this stuff. We're working on it because somebody said we should work on it. That's an executive or something like that. Or we're working on it because we think it's going to do X. And when you dig in and say, well, is it going to increase retention? 
Like, well, we don't really know. We think it is. Well, how can you find out? And that's where I go back to the concept of like, we're not taking baby steps. We're, we're not learning whether that feature even matters to people. We're not doing enough research, which is such a boring word to so many people, but so useful. So yeah, those are, those are the two big mistakes, right? We, we want to add features and we want to think that like our gut and our intuition without it being informed is good enough. Well, but I, I got engineers. Do I need to use them on something? If you want to use your engineers today, please, this will, everyone will argue with me. You probably will too, but like get them to be really good at giving you hourly estimates. If they're not giving you hourly estimates, I don't mean points. I don't mean any of that crap. I mean, literally hourly estimates before they build and are held accountable to them. Not because you're micromanaging them because you want to ship on time. Go make them do that before you tell me you have engineers that can code. <laughs> I just think it's interesting. I mean, I think about some of the products I've used in the past, tech software being one that's interesting, right? And I feel like, okay, it worked. I liked the interface. The flow was good. And now the next year, I understand they got to update for tax laws and do things, but they like changed the whole user interface. And now I'm back to this horrible thing where like, I don't like this year's interface. Can I go back and I roll back to last year's? And, and then I wonder if it's just like, hey, I got engineers. What am I going to do with them? It's because they don't care about the customer. If they heard that and they knew that enough people were saying that, wouldn't they be like, yeah, we don't need to change it. We just need to make it faster. We need to spend our engineering effort on speed, load time, things like that. We need to spend our engineering effort on making sure that any of the bugs that we caught last season are covered and we spend our time on that and we just iteratively improve it. There's no reason to retool the whole thing and make it so the customer all of a sudden is confused. So I think customer confusion is definitely something that is not accounted for during product development. Yeah, I, I, would, completely, so I, like I would completely agree with you. So one of the things you touched on, I'm going to dig into a few things you mentioned in, in that answer, it was roadmaps and why people build things. So how do you build successful roadmaps? What's your advice for the product teams out there wanting to build, you know, a roadmap that is good? I spend a lot of time on this in one of the things I do that I have energy for. Um, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there, right? And I think that, that quote or that theory comes to mind. So I would spend a lot of time, we do these, we do these product assessments and we help teams understand, and this is that product habit, we've been playing around with this concept now that like we have a lot of material on how to do pieces of product development. And the assessment is literally like, we actually have been playing around with calling it a retention plan and helping people assess their whole product team against the number one thing that we think is important on a product team, which is retention. So first of all, what do you know what causes retention in your business? Not just your product, but your whole business. Because sometimes it has to do with sales and customer support, success and things like that. So for me, it's like, a product team is worthless if they're not focused on retention. And that means that, and retention means everything. And what that means derivative of that is if retention is the end goal, what are the things that cause you to have retention? And how do you evaluate the product processes, the qualitative and quantitative initiatives you have and data you have aligned around, is it gonna help you understand and increase retention? And so a lot of the ways I think about it are about what are the things that impact retention and what are the people process, uh, quantitative, qualitative, uh, uh, whether it's processes or behaviors or habits you have, um, how are those impacting your ability to retain more folks? 
Uh, and so it really starts there. I think like if I were to get underneath everything I hear on product, even like creating new features and all of that, the why ends up being how do we get more customers to be retained for longer? So what I see with prioritization and roadmaps is that they're not aligned around a tangible outcome such as increasing retention or an outcome that is a metric uh, or a behavior. It's actually more accurately a behavior in your product that aligns with higher retention. Because it's not like we want higher retention. Let's go weigh all these priorities against is it going to get us more retention? Because retention is definitely something that is sort of the lagging indicator here. And the leading indicators are like, if you're a project management tool, it's actually the not the number of projects that are being created, but it's actually the number of active projects that are on your platform. And active projects means project was created and there's activity in the project, right? And that number going up is going to cause your retention to go up. And so finding those kind of metrics and then essentially evangelizing them on your team and repeating them and rallying your team around a metric like that, a number like that, is really what's gonna, what, what changes the game. And so a lot of the work that I do when I help product teams as well as internally is finding those things that are most important to getting retention and then evangelizing them and then making sure the product development processes and the organization align around it. I like that. One of the things that comes out of that is like how you're managing and whether you're talking about job, let's pick jobs as a framework, jobs to be done. Right? Oh, I got lots to say about it. So well, let's dig into that. Time? Yeah, I think we should go into that next. I mean, oh talk to God. me about jobs, jobs and how that fits in with that and also how it can be done well and poorly, I think. Because I think jobs, and maybe you have a, a, a different opinion, but I think the jobs to be done framework can be applied right. But I think it also can be very, very much applied poorly. I'm, I'm such a, a nerd for all the product frameworks and I dig in and I apply them and I use them and I learn from the best in every single framework, including jobs to be done, right? And I do it myself as well. And I have people train the team. And I'm so thankful that we never doubled down on the jobs stories and that aspect of jobs to be done in any of my companies. And I've never said this before, and it's not because I don't like jobs to be done. It's because I think the failure of jobs to be done is how do you evangelize jobs as a concept inside your company? I haven't seen, maybe you folks have done it successfully, but I haven't seen any company successfully do that. In fact, the companies that I've seen try to evangelize job stories and that format internally fail. And you know, it's, I think it's an absurd reason. We don't understand what a job is. I don't think we can ever explain that in the right way. I think it's the word, the word job and people hiring your product to do a job no, you hire humans to do a job. You don't hire software to do a job. It's a cognitive dissonance that I think causes a lot of problems in people's heads. So now all of a sudden, you have to redefine what every single person in your company thinks a job is. Do they have a job? But yet, this thing is saying, no, 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 they don't have a job. People are hiring your product to do a job. Well, what does that even mean? They're not hiring me to do a job. They're hiring the product to do I don't get it. So I think there's a cognitive dissonance and load when it comes to some of these frameworks and the way they've been named. So that's my first like shot at jobs to be done, hopefully in the heart, because like that aspect of it is really like troubling for me. I've never seen anyone do it right. Have you looked at Basecamp and Ryan Singer? Yeah, of course. Okay. I think he has done the best job of tearing the whole thing apart yeah. because he doesn't mention jobs in a lot of the material he uses. 
like the hill and yeah, all these yeah. concepts he has, he doesn't mention jobs to be done anymore. Why? It's still the same framework. Also, like, jobs to be done comes from... So is this a matter of not the framework itself, but how the framework is... Framed. Yes. It's a terminology. Yes. And evangelism is super important inside a company with a concept, or it doesn't work, right? And if you think about the things that are evangelized easily, they're the ones that you hear the word and you understand what it means. Customer obsession, no one doesn't know what that means. They know, okay, obsession. Yeah. Great, obsessed. Okay, got it. Right? And then you work from there. That being said... I love jobs to be done. There's one reason I love it is because the switch method is an interview method that's used and evangelized by the jobs to be done folks that I would love. If I could have every team and every person that's a product person learn it, I would. It's equivalent to the standard customer development sort of interviews. Here's why. The switch method helps you understand the events that led up to someone switching from their current experience with either another product or an alternative to your product to you. And they also help you understand that switch method interviews. They also help you understand the timeline of what caused people to go from using your product to leaving your product and where they went. It is some of the most valuable research you can do that I don't see enough people doing. And it comes from jobs to be done. But in terms of like hiring your company, your product to do a job and things like that, and people going against personas Things like that. I don't know. I'm not, it's not just that I'm not convinced. I've seen so many companies fail at trying to integrate jobs to be done into their processes, even after getting, you know, the amazing folks that created it and evangelized it to help them. I haven't seen it work at at scale inside of companies and and be evangelized internally, uh, but I have seen consultants do a lot of great work with it. There's one other concept I really like about it, which is the way that they lay out the steps people take to do a task and how detailed they get on the step-by-step process and the research that leads to an understanding of the step-by-step process that people take to get in their terminology, you know, get the job done. So another interesting thing, we, we just, you know, putting jobs aside for a minute. Uh, Sorry probably, for the rant. <laughs> no, no, no. I think, I think it was good and it makes me think about you know, how do you make that better? But that, that'll probably be a topic for another day. Uh, I <laughs> probably could spend time on that today. You don't make it better. You just take the best. And um, uh, one of my friends, friend of a friend uh, says, uh, take the best, leave the rest. Mm-hmm. I That's, would add, make it your own. <laughs> making, I think you need to make everything your own. I right? so agree. You, you know, We're product environment people, of course we want to do that. You, wanna, yeah. you, you have your twist on your company yeah. has, yeah. you know, different core values than the other company, different Absolutely. product principles, different things, different yeah. North Star. You know, you, I think you can't just take something and slap your logo on it and it's yours. You no. have to make things your own. Uh, but, you know, since we talked about jobs, you know, one of those things is trendy. Um, let's talk about something else that's trendy. It's, I think, still trendy, which is Net Promoter Score, right? Talk to me about that. I mean, there's a lot of opinions about Net Promoter Score. Should PMs rely on it? And if they should, how do they make it valuable to them? Yeah, at Product Habits um, and at FYI, we have spent an enormous amount of time researching net promoter score and more importantly, how people get customer feedback, how people understand uh, customer satisfaction. So this is my conclusion. So we've done it for document apps because one of my businesses focuses on connecting to all the document apps. So we wanted to understand the net promoter score there. We've actually recently not released yet done net promoter score on product hunt itself and got a score. And then we've studied it and how people do it and all the pitfalls. And I'm a Jared Spool fanboy. 
and he's a UX yeah, person. Yeah, I have to get him on the and, podcast. Yeah, you should. It'll be fine. Uh, and he hates Net Promoter Score, and he has this whole thing about it. And, like, I'm a fanboy. Like, I love Jared Spool. Like, but I don't agree with him. I think that he's just picking on it. And he's picking on it because of the problem we noticed with it, which is, and I, I wrote a rebuttal to it, uh, but my rebuttal's not sensationalist. It's pretty simple. It's like, if you use it the wrong way, you're not going to get value from it. That's my conclusion after all of this. And the wrong way is take the score, use the score as a benchmark, and that's it. But a benchmark's important because you can benchmark yourself against other folks and have a score. And, and everyone loves a scorecard, so it's not going to go away because it's a good scorecard. That's not the value I get from it. You know the value I get from it? It's when you take the promoters, the detractors, and uh, the, I forgot the third one already. Um, passives. Passives, yes, yes. The promoters, detractors, and passives. And you make sure you ask a question after they fill out the score. So you, you, I'll step back. You do the net promoter score. It's a zero to 10 score. People pick it. And there's different buckets. These are the three buckets. And after they pick the score, you ask them, what's the most important reason for your score? And that information split into those three buckets is some of the most valuable information you can get about why people feel the way they feel about your product. And I wouldn't, what's the problem with that? Like it's, it's that qualitative learning and that segmentation that I'm looking for. I care less about the score and I care so much more about the fact that this system allows me to segment the customer base based on something they understand. Zero to 10 is something people understand and can put place themselves somewhere there about whether they'd recommend your product to a friend or not. And then they tell you why. And it's that why part and the segmentation of the three groups that really matters the most to me. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think the why is really important. And the segmentation is super important, especially if you overlay a lot of different data. Mm. Like, isn't it? Like, I can say, oh, we have an MPS score of 70. And I'm just picking a random number. Great. But it sounds high. Yeah, it, it does sound <laughs> high. And then you look at it and it's like, oh, but how does that look across your different user types? Enterprise customers, SMBs, how titles, does it look with buyers, roles, buyers right? versus users. Yeah, exactly. If, if you, you know, you're selling to someone where the buyer and the user are different. Right. And oh, by the way, you know, it's 90% users and their NPS is 80, but it's 10% buyers and their NPS is 10. Yep. You're looking at a 70 as an aggregate NPS score, just making up numbers, but it seems reasonable. <laughs> and you're thinking things are great. And you get into you know renewal cycles, and you realize all the buyers are not happy. No, you know all of a sudden you have a seventy NPS, and people aren't renewing, right? So segmentation can be a really important part of that, and then Absolutely. overlaying that with data so you can yeah. act on it. Yeah. Like my concern about NPS is it it's often not actionable. I agree. And so the more you have data, the more you segment, and the more you take action on those groups on those whys, you can do really amazing things with NPS. That's right. I think it's that simple, and I think people are just using it the wrong way. They're using it as a score. It's way more than a score. And if you think about most methodologies to understand customers, if they're not focused on the why and they don't add metadata and segmentation, you're actually not going to derive much value to make decisions on them. You can't make a decision just on a score. Yep, yep. I would completely agree. What else? What else do you have to say about MPS? That's it. I don't want to get caught up in a philosophical or religious battle when it comes to things that are objective and improving my product is an objective exercise, right? Making things better, serving the customer. It's objective. Yeah, yeah. It's not subjective. There's like ways you can learn and figure it out. So even jobs to be done or anything, any framework, like again, 
Take the best, leave the rest. And if you're really concerned about it, figure out how to utilize it the right way. And if it's not right for you, don't use it. If you hate MPS, don't use it. If your team is going to abuse it, don't use it, right? If you see it abused, and I learned all about this, of seeing it abused and people doing exactly what you said, which is we have high MPS, but the retention's low. Okay, cool. Well, are there pockets of customers that have high retention? What's their MPS? Maybe theirs is really low. <laughs> what are you going to do then, right? You can do something with that. So for me, I'm just looking for ways to do something, ways to inform uh, uh, decision-making. And I think the thing I would say is it's the difference between being data-driven and data-informed. So data-driven would be like, this is our score. Let's go make it go up. It went up, but our business isn't better. Okay, you made a score go up, but you didn't actually think about why the score yeah. was the way it was. I used to hate that when people say, oh, you shouldn't be data-driven, you should be data-informed. And yeah. I'm thinking like, oh, it's just all how you're talking about it. Yeah. But I, I think how you're talking about it is kind of important from the standpoint of people can identify with that. They yeah. can understand what data-driven means. That yeah. means like, in the way they interpret that is like, I'm just making decisions based on data, not using any intuition yeah. or any judgment. Or where we want to go. So yeah. for me, it's like, where do we want to go? And that's data informed. It's like, we always stick to where we want to go. We don't focus on the data and having it tell us where to go. Awesome. Yeah. Let's talk about your advice. What advice would you give to young product managers? You know, the biggest piece of advice I can give is really get good at the qualitative side of customer research. Uh, get good at interviewing customers in an unbiased way, get good at writing survey questions that are uh, unbiased, uh, get good at user testing, get good at the things that are not quantitative, get good at the parts of product development that help you get closer to the customer and learn things in their own words. So I, I know I was going to I usually say, hey, so let's get to know Heaton a little bit more. But I feel like we've gotten to know you a lot through so. this whole process. Yeah. But let's, let's dig into things sure. that are very specific to you now. So what's your favorite product? What's my favorite product? I have these shoelaces, and they're called Hickeys. That's my favorite product. I'm wearing them right now. Why do you love them? Because I don't have to tie my shoelace. Oh. And they look good. Those are cool. And they have different colors, but I always will get the black ones because I wear shoes that that works with. That's it. Hmm. My favorite product. I'll give you my second favorite, too. I have these pants I'm wearing. They're by Uniqlo. Here, feel them. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah? Right? They're stretch pants. Yeah. They look like jeans. They do? That's it. Those are my two favorite products. I gave you two. That's, that's great. I appreciate that. <laughs> so one final question as we wrap up today, and then we're going to have to have session two to dig into some other stuff. I'm right in. Now. But uh, three words to describe yourself. You were going to do it. I, I, you <laughs> promised me. I can, I can give you my three that I, I did would love to on. hear your three. So, I mean, I'll stick with the three that yeah. I had before. Yeah. Passionate. Because that comes across in spades. The stories you tell, they're, they're openly honest. So I'll go with that way. I don't know if that's really a word. It's not. Well, it's a couple words. Honestly open is the yeah, other way you said open. it. Yes, okay. Openly honest. <laughs> okay. Either way, I think is good. We'll yeah. have a hyphen in there and call it a word. Sounds good. Which is probably wrong, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, third, I think I'll stick with this improving because... <laughs> You know, whether it's yourself or products, you're always thinking about how you improve things. And and that's kind of unique, too. I could go with unique. Yeah, I'll take but it. There's, I, there's a few, right? I, so which three would you pick? I appreciate that. Um, it's really hard for me to see myself in an objective way uh, because uh, I have a hard time being pegged. I don't think you pegged me, but based on this experience, you had an experience and you came up with three words. So, I mean, I value the truth. And I really, at the same time, believe there is no truth. 
It's just my truth or your truth or whatever. So I think truth, you know, or, or truthfulness would be one that like I'm always seeking. So I'm always seeking the truth. Uh, another one I would say is um, perspective. Uh, I'm always thinking, and again, these are not quite the words to describe me, but like I'm seeking perspective, other people's and my own and making sure that it's aligned. And so, and the third one I would, I would say related to that is um, I like being a mediator. And, and that just means that like, you know, I really think about trade-offs a lot. And I think about like, what are the right ones to make, whether it's product or life or whatever, uh, without being too prescriptive about it. So um, yeah, again, not quite descriptive words of myself, but the ones I'll throw out that are unrelated to, in great part to the ones you said. Well, thank you. This yeah. has been awesome. Yeah. Greatly appreciate thank your you. time. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people.